this morning, I want to talk to us about a habit. One habit, one discipline that we need that will change everything for us. And that's repentance. Because as I got thinking this week, and you know, I just had in my preaching plan that, okay, it's the first Sunday of the new year, we need to preach a Happy New Year's type sermon or a resolution sermon or something like that. I was thinking, what one thing could make the difference? Let me lead us in prayer and then we'll go ahead. God, our Father, we come before you this morning and we're thankful to be together. Thankful that you have called us unto yourself and thankful that we get to worship you. And as we come to open your word, we pray as always that you open our understanding. And Father, when it comes to the topic of repentance, we realize that our toes might get stepped on a little bit before you. We need it. And we realize that we need to be humble before you. Well, it's true. So, Father, would we not bow up against the Holy Spirit today? Would we not resist the leading of Scripture? Would we come before you humbly? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend of mine, I've mentioned before, I went to college with Sherry Dakin. Sherry is a pastor's daughter, and she writes and blogs in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And she wrote a blog post a couple years ago that I saved, and she starts out by saying, Acorns everywhere. And the area of North Dallas that she lives in is known for having pin oak trees, and those pin oak trees are prolific in their acorn production. These itty-bitty little acorns, a little bit bigger than the size of a dime, if you were to look at them, and those things are everywhere. And she writes that one morning last week, I spent 20 minutes sweeping off the patio so I could sit outside and enjoy my coffee and my Bible study. And even while I sat there, more acorns fell on my head. It's like trying to pick up the trails that small children leave behind them, or trying to keep up with the laundry when everybody in the house keeps wearing clothes. It feels like fighting a losing battle, the futility of continuing to do something that keeps coming undone. But isn't life like that, she asks. So much of our days are routines and monotonous. The squares on the calendar start to run together, each one the same. It can wear us down if we think about it too much, like the same old song stuck on repeat, playing ad nauseum in the background. Like, I don't know about you, but I would have a hard time working at Menards because every time I go there, you know, you hear that jingle about every three minutes, say big money at Menards. Do they still play that jingle all the time in that song? Whew, it would drive me crazy. The same song stuck on a second verse. Somebody said in Bible study a couple weeks ago that stuck out to me. Or she said somebody said something that stuck out to her. It was about repentance and how it has to become a daily action for Christ followers. How we mistakenly sometimes think of it as a one-time get-out-of-jail-free card. But it's not that at all. Repentance is our way back to the Father, and it's necessary every time we turn away. Which, if you're like me, is pretty often. 
And here's what got me to thinking about repentance. This sentence right here. And this is mine, not Sherry's. Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. Christianity is not about behavior modification, changing what we do. It's about heart transformation. It's about our being. And when your being changes, your doing will follow. So how do we change at the heart level? Well, friends, it starts with repentance, with acknowledging our sin, mourning over the grief that that causes God, asking God for forgiveness, celebrating the fact that Jesus paid the price for our sins, and apologizing to anyone you may have sinned against. Will you sin again? Yes. Will it be the same sin? Sometimes. Does this mean I haven't repented correctly? No. It means you're a sinner and in need of a Savior. Authentic repentance is about your relationship with God. Not becoming a better person. So our New Year's resolution, number one, ought to be to repent daily. I've given all this super long introduction to lead us to our scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writing to that church at Corinth, and you know we have 1 Corinthians, obviously that means we have a 2 Corinthians. Some scholars even think that there was a other letter to the church at Corinth that we don't have. Some scholars think that um, maybe it is that we do have that letter, but it kind of got mashed together with what we know as 2 Corinthians. So it was really, you know, part of 2 Corinthians is really 1 Corinthians, part of it's 3 Corinthians. And I mean, so scholars have all these debates over this, right? Based on the structure and based on the word use and all these sort of things. And so although I acknowledge that to you, what I'm saying is this. Paul had to say some hard things to the people at Corinth. And it's almost like when we get to this passage of Scripture today that he's saying, let me tell you, hang on a second. And I actually want to start in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter. So he wrote him a hard letter and he's like, I'm sorry. I do not regret it. Though I do regret it. Aren't you glad that Paul is a human? Just like you and me. He doesn't regret it, but he does regret it. He wished he wouldn't have to hurt you. He says, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. That's what discipline should do, shouldn't it? Discipline should teach us the right way. Discipline should lead us to change to be better, whether that's being or doing or both. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, 
What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of one who did wrong or the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. So we pull this passage out to be able to study it with this topic of repentance, but there are other ideas woven within here. The basic definition of repentance, however, is to turn away from something, to change your mind, to change your actions. Nothing more, nothing less. Repentance is about seeking forgiveness for the mistakes, for the downfalls, for your sins. And when we repent, we're telling God we put His will above ours. Repentance is not just a one-time act leading to conversion. It's a way of life for Christians that we should be known as repenters. Repent is a common word in the book of Acts. If you go back and read Acts and you see the beginning of the early church, you see that word. So let's consider four questions in consideration of true repentance. Four questions in consideration of true repentance. And the first one is this, based on verse 10. How are godly and worldly sorrow different? How are godly and worldly sorrow different? Go back to verse 10. Verse 10, what does Paul write? He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Paul just answered the question I asked you. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. When it comes to our sins... We can't unsin, but we can repent. You might want to write that down. You can't unsin, but you can repent. It reminds me of if you drive a nail into some wood. You can pull the nail out, but there's still going to be a hole from where the nail was. You can't unsin, but you can repent. So if we compare and contrast this idea of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, it's really a contrast between true, broken repentance versus an unrepentant, prideful, I'm sorry I got caught Think about it. The unrepentant person is concerned only with the consequences of their sin. Frankly, they might only be concerned with the fact that they got caught. And speaking in generalities, when they confess their sin is what the unrepentant person would do. There's defiance in an unrepentant person. There's pride. There's fear. There's anger. All these negative emotions come out from an unrepentant person. But contrast that with a repentant person. A broken person. That person responds in humility. They're grieved over the root of his or her sin. And they, that's assuming they know the root and they want to find it out. 
They'll acknowledge specifics when confessing their sins. And they're genuinely sorrow and broken by their sin and what it may have done to you or to a body or to God himself. And therefore, they want accountability and they want to turn away from that. It shouldn't be hard to see the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. It's the difference between pride and humility, between arrogance and brokenness. But when it comes to repentance, sometimes we get hung up on the fact that we have to. If we're dealing with that unrepentant, worldly sorrow, arrogance, and I think, oh, I sinned again and I have to repent again. I would remind you to take the humble approach and say, I sinned again, but by God's grace, I get to repent again. Because God is still merciful, because God is still gracious, because God still loves me, even in my sin. And let that humble your heart, let that break your spirit, in order that you might be truly repentant. Remember, Christianity is not about behavior modification, but heart transformation. And repentance is a gift, not a burden. Repentance is a gift, not a burden. So, your second question, what does godly sorrow produce? What does godly sorrow produce? Look at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. He's going to give us a list. What earnestness. You know what it means to be earnest. That, that, for real, genuine, concerned. What eagerness to clear your name or vindication. What indignation. What alarm. What longing. What concern. That is also translated as zeal. They were zealous to find out. What readiness to see justice is done. Another translation says to punish wrong. Think about that, even if it's your own wrong. And at every point, and at every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. That's that next part. That's to describe the effects. The effects of godly sorrow is that you want to do something about it. That there's a true brokenness in your heart. Like Joel chapter 2 verse 13 says, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. That word return in Hebrew means turn, literally. Turn around. Repent is what it means. Shub is the word. This word here, that Paul uses. In English, we have it as repentance in this passage in 2 Corinthians 7. But in Greek, it's metanoi. Metanoi. I need to say that all together. Metanoi. Does it sound like anything we know, like metamorphosis? Metanoi means a change of direction. Just like metamorphosis means a change of being. And godly sorrow produces that kind of effect. And we can see godly sorrow because there's an earnestness, an eagerness, a zealousness, a fear. And it isn't defensive or prideful. 
It's sorrowful. Because it realizes I can't, but God can. And genuine repentance involves knowledgeable dependence on Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Someone said it's an unknown quote. Pastor Jim Cimbala tweeted out this morning, introspection, counseling, self-effort, and new spiritual book or Bible translation will not change us in 2018. Only the Holy Spirit can burn up pride and all the junk inside us. We need the Holy Spirit to bring about genuine repentance to truly break us. So your third question is why did Paul write this letter? That's in verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of one who did wrong or of the injured party, but rather before God, that before God. You could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. So Paul says it's not for the sinner that he wrote. It's not for the one that was sinned against that he wrote. But it was for you, the church that he's writing to, not an individual, to see for yourself how devoted you are to God. So I guess they are the sinners in a sense, but he's saying not because you sinned, not in the negative sense, but he's saying, I want you to see that as you found real godly sorrow, as you were broken by that, as you were humbled by that, that that would be encouraging to you. Now that sounds crazy and upside down to this world, doesn't it? It's one of those biblical paradoxes that when you are humble, you would actually be encouraged. When you are broken, you can actually have joy. But in Christ, it's true. Because you realize that I'm sinful, and I've done this, or this, or this, or I've done all these things. But when I am broken and humble, and ask God to forgive me, I have that repentant spirit that wants to turn away from those sins. God in His grace does forgive me. Because God always loves me. He sent His Son Jesus to die for me. There's some of us here this morning that very well may need to trust Christ Jesus to be our personal Lord and Savior for the first time ever. You've heard about it before, but you've just never done it. One thing or another became an excuse, and you need to repent from all those sins in your life and say, I want to follow Jesus as my Savior, saving me from my sins, but also as my Lord, the boss who's going to tell me how to live my life. There are others of us here today, most of us who are believers in Jesus, but we have allowed things to build up in our life. When we first moved into our parsonage in Texas, the church we served before we came here about 17 years ago, we quickly noted some things about this parsonage. It was a 2,000 square foot brick home, three, uh, two bath, three uh, bedroom, two car garage on a three quarter acre lot on the country road outside of town. It was really nice for a parsonage at first glance. But then you began to look around and see how things were done in a very, we 
we're going to get by and do it the cheap way. You know those little covers on the bathtub, you know, where you have the deal that goes up and down to drain the tub? There was a butter dish lid right there for one of those. Um, you know the thing that holds, you know, where you pull the deal to make your curtains go in and out, you know, like for your uh, sliding glass door? Um, there was a, a Dr. Pepper top right there to hold that far enough away from the um, wall so you could do that. But then the thing that was the worst to me, and I don't know if Melanie remembers this, is, you know, we hadn't been there that long. And like, the sink backs up. And we're like, this smells terrible. There's other terrible smells about that house, but we'll leave that for another story. And he's like, well, we had a plumber in our church, so I called him up. He's like, oh, I'll be there as soon as I can, Brother Aaron. And so he comes over. And, you know, I don't know too much about this because I'd lived in an apartment before that. And, you know, so I don't know about having a house and running a snake. And he's like, here, Brother Aaron, you get on some gloves. You can help me. I'm like, okay. So we get down there by the clean out. We're filling that thing in. And he says to me, the snake will tell the tale. I said, what do you mean the snake will tell the tale? He says, when we pull it out, we'll know exactly what stopped it up because what the snake will look like. I'm like, I think that's going to be gross and it's going to smell terrible. He says, yeah, it probably will. So we run it down through there and he says, it's going through pretty easy. I don't feel anything. We're still feeding it through, feeding it through, feeding it through. And then we get it all the way to the end and, you know, okay, run some water. See if it goes through. It goes through fine. All right, we got the clog there. So we pull it out. And as we're pulling it out, it comes out and it is black as tar and it's the funkiest smell you ever smelled in your entire life. He says, "Um, you hadn't lived here that long, so it couldn't have been you. He says, were there any evidence that the former pastor did a lot of frying? I said, oh yeah, the whole backsplash to the stove was just greasy and nasty. And you know, the hood was greasy and nasty. He said, and I think they poured it all down the sink. He said, I'm going to have to give you some stuff to treat this because we just cleared a hole now, but it's going to get clogged up again. I will just never forget that smell. Why did I start telling this story? Go back to verse 12, Pastor Aaron. Verse 12, what does it say? Wasn't I in verse 12? Was I? Yeah, I'd ask that question. Why did Paul write this letter? That his readers would. Yeah. I slept well last night. I got this new pillow that I'm going to have to return to the store. Melanie says it even makes me snore more. Here was my point. Just as my plumber friend said, the snake would tell the tale. Our lives are going to tell the tale of where our sins are, where our hurts, our habits our hang-ups, and the kind of things that clog up our life spiritually. Paul wrote this letter, reading verse 12, not on account of the one who did wrong or the injured party, but rather before God, you would see how devoted to us you are. 
He wanted him to see their humility and brokenness and how it changed him. Repentance is about turning away from our fleshly desires instead of it's clinging to the beauty and supremacy of God's will. There's nothing to be ashamed of in admitting that you've sinned. There's plenty to be ashamed of in continuing to sin and covering it up. But repentance bridges the gap between our failures and our sins and God's forgiveness. Repentance is the act whereby I say, God, I have been doing wrong and I have sinned, but I want to repent and turn back to you and you to forgive me from my sins. And just as that nasty drain pipe needed cleaned out, not just with the snake, but with some other products to get all that stuff out so the water could run clearly, our lives need to be cleaned out. And repentance does that. It's the gateway to a new relationship with God or a renewed relationship with God. Hosea 10.12, write that one down. Hosea 10.12 in the Holman Christian Standard Bible says this. Sow righteousness for yourselves and reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. It's time to seek the Lord until He comes and sends righteousness on you like rain. That last line, it's time to seek the Lord until He comes and sends righteousness on you like rain. Rain generally falls in such a way that it is good for the earth. But what about a destructive rainfall that all comes down too hard and too fast? I don't know whether Hosea is talking about the kind that's going to clobber you or the kind that's going to bless you. Because God's righteousness is powerful like that. But Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church to remind them of who God was. And remind them of their need to repent to be more like God. So let's look at our fourth question. What are the results of true repentance? The results of true repentance. You see three of them here. Verse 13. By all this, we are encouraged. So encouragement is one result. In addition to our own encouragement... We were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed because of you. So delight or joy is a second result. Refreshing is a third result. Your Bible might use different words for those key words there. It might even say that you were comforted instead of encouraged. Do you have a friend that when you're having a bad day, you just want to call them up? Maybe these days you want to FaceTime them. Or maybe if you can, you want to see them in real life, you know. You just think to yourself, man, if I, when I get home, I'm going to see my wife and my wife will make everything better. Or, you know, you live apart, I got to call my friend because this friend will help me understand this. But I guarantee you by the time I get off the phone with this friend, I'll be laughing as well. That's what this is talking about, this refreshing. That kind of idea that there's somebody or something that changes your perspective. 
And that the repentance that the Corinthian church had was refreshing, brought comfort and brought joy to Paul, to Titus and to all who knew about it. Charles Spurgeon says this, repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks. A temporary penance to get over as fast as possible. No, it's the grace of a lifetime like faith itself. God's little children repent. And so do the young men and their fathers. Repentance is the inseparable, inseparable companion of faith. Write down that last line on your notes. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. That if you are going to have faith in Jesus, you're going to have repentance as an inseparable companion. The other possible results that we might see, there's comfort, there's joy, there's peace, there's humility. That's that next little line on the um, outline. There's rest. Think about it. When you have repented, there's nothing to hide anymore. So there's freedom. There's peace. Jared C. Wilson, the director of communications at Midwestern Seminary, is more than his title would say. Any of the man's books I read or the blogs I read, I'm just blown away, both by his intellectual depth but also his spiritual depth. And he wrote 12 signs that we have a genuinely, genuinely repentant heart. And I want to share those with you in conclusion. Number one, we name our sin as sin and do not spin it or excuse it. And further, we demonstrate godly sorrow, which is to say a grief chiefly about the sin itself, not just a grief of being caught or having to deal with the consequences. Number two, we actually confessed before we got caught or the circumstantial consequences of the sin caught up with us. Confessing before you're caught, that's genuinely repentant. Number three, if found out, we confess immediately or very soon after and we come clean rather than having to have the full truth coaxed out of us. Real repentance is typically accompanied by transparency. Wise line. Real repentance is typically accompanied by transparency. Why? Because there's a brokenness and there's a humility that says, I can't hide from this, I shouldn't hide from this. Number four, we have a willingness and eagerness to make amends. We will do whatever it takes to make things right and demonstrate that we have changed. It's because there's a humility there. Number five, we are patient with those we've hurt or victimized, spending as much time as it's required listening to them without jumping to defend ourselves. When we defend ourselves so many times, it's about our pride, our self-image, our self-worth, our doubts, our fears. But true repentance rests in Jesus. Verse number six, we are patient with those we've heard or victimized as they process their hurt and we don't pressure them or guilt them into forgiving us. You've done that dance before, right? Well, they haven't forgiven me, so I'm not going to forgive them. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells you forgive as as you've been forgiven. It doesn't matter what the other person does. You have to forgive. Number seven, we are willing to confess our sin even in the face of serious consequences. 
including church discipline, going to jail, separation from a spouse. Number eight, we may grieve the consequences of our sin, but we do not bristle under them or resent them. We understand that sometimes our sin causes great damage to others and that it is not healed in the short term or even perhaps this side of heaven. That's one that some Christians have a hard time dealing with. They say, well, I confessed. Yes, you confessed, but you still have consequences to deal with. Confession doesn't always absolve you of consequences. Someone's forgiveness doesn't always absolve you of consequences. Number nine, if our sin involves addiction or a pattern of behavior, we do not neglect to seek help with a counselor, a solid 12-step program, celebrate recovery, or even a rehab center if need be. Number 10, we don't resent gracious accountability Pastoral rebuke or church discipline. You know somebody's broken. You know they're humble. You know they're repentant when they're willing to receive accountability, when they're willing to receive instruction, even discipline. Number 11, we seek our comfort in the grace of God in Jesus Christ, not simply in being free of the consequences of our sin. That one's important. It's not just that we don't have the consequences, but it's that we grow in our relationship with Jesus and grow in our dependence of Him. And because of our repentance, we're closer to Jesus. There's a regular occurrence that happens with me as a pastor. And it happens with some of you as well. When somebody comes and talks to you about something they've done, and they need a sounding board. They need counselor. They need um, someone to hold them accountable. And they confess some sin. And regularly that person will say something to me like, Pastor Aaron, I know you won't love me anymore. Or you'll be embarrassed by me, or something like that. And my regular response is this, and I mean it. And you know what? I love you more now. I love you more now because I know that you are real. I know that you were repentant. I know that you were broken. And your humility is attractive to me. And I love you and respect you more now knowing that you're not perfect than I did when I thought you were perfect before you came in here. There's a beauty that happens in repentance and the love around that. And that comfort, knowing Jesus' grace and the grace that others give to us. The twelfth indication of genuine repentance, according to Jared C. Wilson, is this. We're humble and teachable. Frankly, any one of those other eleven would speak to that, but he sums it up with those two words, humble and teachable. So a question for you. What are you repenting of these days? If the title of our sermon is One Habit for a Great New Year, Daily Repentance, then the question has to be, what am I repenting of? Owen Strahan says, 
If you're trapped in patterns of sin and without peace, do not simply repeat words about grace. Make good on grace. Confess. Repent. Let's pray. God, our Father, that's our prayer that we would make good on grace this morning. That there wouldn't be a place for pride in this place right now. There wouldn't be a place for fear. But that we would be filled with grace and faith and courage in order that we might be humble and repent of whatever you've called us to. So, Father, we may repent where we sit. We may feel the need to come down and pray at this altar by ourselves or with someone else. Whatever it is, would we do it now? But would we remind ourselves to do it daily? God, our Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you forgive us and you keep giving us grace. And that you call us to make good on grace by our repentance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.